You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, get out your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 2 today. And to begin, I want to tell you about a friend of mine. A guy by the name of Secular Steve. Now, uh, it's a bummer of a name, but I want you to know Secular Steve, he's not a bad guy. In fact, he's a really good guy. He's, he's very moral. He works hard. Um, he's honest. You know, he doesn't drink or chew or go with girls that, that do, as they say. In fact, most of you, if you had daughters, you would want your daughter to marry Secular Steve. He's a great guy. He really is. But it's not, he's not just moral. I mean, he is. He is a believer. He's a Christian. As a child, he got saved at Vacation Bible School, and he truly believes that Jesus died for his sins. More than that, y'all, he is secular Steve. You're not going to believe this. He is active in his church. He goes every Sunday. He serves in a ministry. And throughout the week, he's devoted. He reads his Bible. He prays. He only listens to Christian music on the way home from work, even. So you may say, well, it sounds like Steve has an inaccurate nickname. He doesn't sound very secular. Well, his name's not ironic, though. Steve, he actually is. He's very, 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 in fact, profoundly secular in this one way. He defines himself as he is today more than how he will be one day. So he sees himself right now as really a, a combination of the good and the bad things that he's done. And maybe that he's left undone. And then he combines that with how he's been feeling the past few days. And then he, he combines that with how the people in his life view him. And he mixes that all up together. And he says, this is who I am. Whatever hope he has, whatever hope he can find in his life is hope in the now. It is limited to things he can experience, feel, attain right now. Then the end of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians is amazing because Paul lets us in on his prayers. He says, I'm going to tell you how I pray, how I pray for these believers in Thessalonia. And probably what's just as telling is what he doesn't pray for. So he doesn't pray for God to remove their burdens, even though they are many and very burdensome. He doesn't pray for God to make their life easier. He doesn't pray for them to do better. In fact, he, he really doesn't pray for them to do anything, and his prayers really don't have much to do with their current circumstances. His prayer is simply this, that they will learn to see themselves, not from a secular point of view as they are now, but that they would learn to see themselves from an eternal point of view as they will be one day. So here, here's how this works, too. If you see yourself as you are now, you are defining yourself by what you have done. But to see yourself from an eternal perspective is to define yourself by what God has done. So that's our big idea today. This is our big idea. You are who God says you are. You want to know who you are? You are who God says you are. Let's read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13 and 17. He says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, 
beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, the God our Fa- and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now, y'all, this is just a few verses. Usually we read a lot more verses than that, but these are dense because Paul has actually just summarized the whole Christian faith. He has summarized our salvation, and he starts off by the same way he began the letter, by saying, I ought to always give thanks for you. He said that in chapter 1, verse 3. That's how he started the letter. So between now and then, think of all we've talked about, all the, the fear all the speculation of the man of lawlessness. Then we're going to talk about idleness, all the confusion. Even after all that, there's still plenty of reason to give thanks. He's saying here that there's things you can always be thankful for because they are always true, no matter what else is going on around you. What is always true? Well, what God says about you. That's what is always true. That's who you are. You know, one of the most uh, popular uh, doctrines and the doctrines that people care about the most these days is the inerrancy and authority of the Scriptures, of the Bible. And so often when people find out about our church or if they come to a Discover Bethel, if they're going to ask about some theological point, they're going to ask about that. Do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? You ain't some crazy liberal, are you? Yes, yes, we believe it is inerrant, it is authoritative. But usually we, when we talk about that, we mean... Theological principles or commands, you know, the thou shalt and the thou shalt not. Or maybe we mean that from a historical perspective, you know. So walls of Jericho really did fall. The Red Sea really did part. Often, though, the place it's really hard to apply that is about ourselves, isn't it? And what the Bible says about us. So when the inerrant, authoritative word of God says that you are forgiven says that I've removed your sins as far as the east is from the west. Though you are like scarlet, I have made you white as snow. Man, it's really hard to take that as authoritative sometimes, isn't it? But it's true, y'all. If the Bible is authoritative over historical events and commands and morality, then it is authoritative over who you are and what is most true about you. Whoever God says you are, that's who you are. One of the hardest things, I think, for us to believe about what God says about us is what Paul says next. He says, you are beloved by God. The inerrant, authoritative word of God says that God loves you. Now, this is something you have to settle. You can't be like secular Steve. You can't use your morality or immorality as a gauge for how much God loves you. It's easy, it's easy I think, for us to think, you know, God has a, a love dial, you know? And when we choose to believe in him, when we choose to follow him, and that dial gets turned way up. And then, oh, we mess up a little bit and God adjusts his dial. Oh, but then we do good. We're in church today. You know, I'm going to spend $100 on the pastor's cookies he made. Okay, we'll turn that dial way up. <laughs> the love of God is not a conditional love. There's no dial. How do we know this? 
the ultimate sign, of the ultimate proof of God's love is the cross. Greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his brothers. Now, I don't know if you know this, the cross happened thousands of years ago. Before you could even breathe, before any human ever knew you would exist, before you could earn it or do something to not earn it, before you could do good or do bad. Back then, he decided to love you. I think I can't say it any better than Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, God did not begin to love you when you first repented and turned to him. He saw you in the glass of his eternal purpose and he loved you then. That love he proved many centuries before you knew anything about it. He gave the fullest proof of his affection for you in laying down his life for you. There was nothing in you to merit this wondrous self-sacrifice on the part of Christ. On the contrary, you were his enemies. You profaned his holy name and despised his sacrifice after you learned what he had done. But he gave himself for you because from eternity he had loved you with a love that would not be turned from its purpose by anything that he foresaw would be done by you. He loved you with a love that would not be turned aside by anything he foresaw would be done by you. That's what Paul says next. He says next, God chose you as his first fruits. So Paul, he ties God's love with God's choice. That word first fruits, it can actually be translated before time. So not just a few thousand years ago, before time began in eternity past, God chose you. Now, for people like secular Steve, who work really hard to be lovable, listen, that, this reality will kill your pride. It will snuff it out. But if you will let it, it will give you more love than you ever dreamed was possible. That word chose, it's the same word for treasured. God treasured you. He sovereignly elected to treasure you in eternity past. This is what this means. When God chose you, he was shopping at the jewelry store, not the dollar store. Now, I don't know about you, when I go to the dollar store, I'm looking to spend as little as I can to get the minimum thing that, I, that will like suit my purpose, okay? I don't go looking for treasures at the dollar store. But when you go to the jewelry store, you're looking for the greatest, most valuable, most beautiful treasure, and you're looking to spend the most you can afford to get that treasure. Men and women, God treasured you. The, and it wasn't out of ignorance. The omniscient God, he knew everything you would think, everything you would do, everything you would feel. He knew what he was getting in you, and he decided to pay full price, the price of the cross, because he treasured you. Now, I know a lot of people have heard me say these words chose and elected, and you're, you're either like, yeah, Calvinism, or oh no, Calvinism. I, I want you to notice what Paul's doing here. He He's not explaining it. A lot of this, y'all, logically, I can't explain. He's not explaining it. He's giving thanks for it. That's what he's doing. He's giving thanks for it. So, does the Bible say God is sovereign? You better believe it. Does the Bible say, hey, make some choices, work out your salvation? You better believe it. How do you make sense of those two? Sometimes I can't, but you know what I can do? 
I can give thanks for it. I can worship him for it. And I know it is the only way. God's choice is the only way that I can know that I am who God says I am. That I am loved, treasured, chosen, simply because God said so. I didn't get a vote in the matter. Next, Paul says, because, because of God's love, because you're beloved, he says, you are saved. Well, that's great, but what am I saved from? Saved from what? Immediately we think eternity, hell. Yes, you are saved from eternal suffering. That is true, but there's more than that. Paul's writing to some people going through uh, a lot of suffering, a lot of persecution, people coming from all kind of lifestyles beforehand. He's saying, even now, you are saved from the effects of your sin. You're saved from guilt. You're saved from shame. You're saved from doubt. You're saved from fear. See, secular Steve, his problem is, if he sees himself as he is today, then he's got to do something with the bad choices that he's made. What does he do with that? Maybe he just carries around the guilt all the time, or or maybe he tries to earn his way out of it, or, or make up for it. Or maybe he just tries to do better. But God has saved you from all of that. And this salvation, listen, it is a gift you receive. It is not a right you earn. Because see, here's what happened. Here's what happened on the cross. On the cross, all of God's wrath for your sin and mine was poured out on his son. And you know what that means? It's all gone. There's none left For you, and so what God says about you today is that you are no longer in your sin in any way, shape, or form. Instead, he says, you are in Christ. That means you can't and you don't have to make up for it. Christ did that. God no longer sees your sin. In fact, we use that word atonement a lot to describe what Christ did. That word atonement, the, the literal translation is actually to cover up. And and the picture is that the innocent blood in the Old Testament, the innocent blood would would cover up their sin. So literally, God couldn't see it. It would hide it from God's view. And so the picture is literally that Jesus hides your sin from God's view. So he can't see. He's like he did the John Cena, okay? God can't even see it anymore. Instead, when he looks at you, he sees his son. And the fact, the fact that you are no longer in your sin, but you are in Christ means you have a new ability. You have gained an ability that you didn't used to have. That's what Paul says next. He says you are sanctified in the Spirit. So before we we were saved, we are enslaved to sin. And so we have no ability not to sin. It's like we're in a locked up jail cell, chains around our ankles, and our wrist, and we cannot get free even if we want to. But the Bible says once you're in Christ, you have the ability not to sin. Those chains have been broken. That jail cell is unlocked. Now, some of us still choose to sit in that jail cell, but we have an ability we didn't used to have. We can get up and walk out if we choose to. Sanctification, it's one of these things that we often misunderstand. We often say, okay, we're saved through faith, through believing, but I got to sanctify myself. I got to do this. Y'all, that's not what sanctification is. You know what sanctification is? Sanctification is simply the process of becoming who you already are. That's what it is. It's walking 
and who God says you are. You are beloved. You are chosen. You are treasured. You are saved. That's already true. So go live like it's true. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Lion King. And we actually, me and Kiss sat down the other night and we watched. Another, you know, there's not like the new uh, real movie. There's like, they made two more animated Lion King movies. So there's Lion King 2, and then there's something called The Lion King 1 and a half. I had no idea. Did y'all know about this? Somehow, my kids found this on Disney+. Plus. I thought they were making it up. Why, there, there's no way there's a Lion King 1 and a half. Well, y'all, there is, okay? So we watched it, and it's good. It's not as good as the original, okay? The original, y'all, the original, it's, sanctification is all in there. You, you know the story. There's the Lion King, and he's singing Akuna Matata while he's eating grub worms with his friends. The problem, though, with that picture is, even though they're having fun in the moment, is that he is the Lion King, not the Lion Grub Worm Eater. And so the ghost of his dad appears in the sky, you know. You remember what he tells him? You are more than what you have become. You are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. You are my son. You're the Lion King. That's what sanctification is, is remembering who we are. It's the process of becoming more and more who we already are. And Paul tells us here, though, you're not doing it alone. So Simba got Rafiki. You get somebody better than Rafiki. You get the Holy Spirit. See, it's important to remember. This is where we get off track. You can no more sanctify yourself than you can save yourself. The Spirit is doing it in you. And you may have noticed by now, by now, just a couple verses in, we've got the whole Trinity on board with your salvation. The Father chooses, the Son loves, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies. So we see at every step, you are who God says you are. He's involved in the whole process. And that's what Paul has been trying to say throughout the letter. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, in this book, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, Paul gives them the message that God sanctifies those he saves. He doesn't just save you and say, hey, good luck, have at it, hope you make it. No, God sanctifies those he saves. And, okay, so but here's a question. And here's where we get confused and it's hard to understand sometimes. Understand. Okay, if God does this work, if he sanctifies it all, us also, what do we do? I mean, do we just enter some trance or something and we don't know what's going on? Well, no. There's a way the Bible talks about that. It talks about this kind of the same way over and over. The way it talks about it is that we participate. We cooperate. And so Paul says here, the way we cooperate is belief in the truth. It's belief. It is faith. Now, we have to understand faith, belief, it is more than just mental assent, just knowing some facts. Water boils at 220 degrees, I think. Is that right, y'all? 212? Okay, so it's definitely not like that if it's wrong. I don't know. Just knowing some facts, okay? It's more than that. It's trust. It's trusting that rope that's holding me enough to jump. It involves every inch of our being, our mind, our heart, our willpower, our choices. We choose to operate based on what God has said is true. But we have to remember it is still empowered by God. So that means faith, believing in the truth, 
it's more like a sail than a paddle. You know, some people treat their faith like they're in a boat with a paddle. And they got to work and paddle and get themselves going the right direction. And the stormier the seas get, the harder the wind blows, the difficult it is, man, they got to dig and paddle and go and push harder and harder and harder. And some of you are doing that right now. But it's not a paddle. It's a sail. See, throughout the Bible, actually, the Holy Spirit is symbolized by the wind. And if faith is a sail, that means there's this force called the wind that's all around you, and it is more powerful than you. And the best thing you can do is not to paddle, but to cooperate with the wind. So belief is raising your sail. Belief is positioning yourself where that wind is blowing and letting it take you where you need to go. So when we do the spiritual disciplines, when we read our Bible, when we pray, when we worship together, when we fellowship with one another, when we serve, we are positioning ourselves, aligning ourselves with the Spirit who does the work in and through us. That's, how you, that's why you have to know. You have to know you are who God says you are. So that makes you know you can't change yourself, but the Holy Spirit is a work all around you and inside of you. So next, Paul says that you are called through the gospel. Now, notice something. You didn't call the gospel. The gospel called you. Think about this. The, the Bible says that every one of us, we don't naturally love the truth. In fact, we naturally reject the truth. And so at some point, everyone in here who's a believer, at some point in your life, while you were God's enemy, while you loved your sin, while you focused on yourself, you're doing your own thing, somehow God found a way for the message of the gospel, not for you just to hear it, but for you to accept it, for it to get through right in here. Y'all, that is a miracle. You didn't believe the gospel just because you're smarter than other people or because you're more spiritual than other people. It was a miracle. No less than a dead man being brought back to life, the Bible says. So I'd love for somebody in here to do something. I'd love for somebody in here to do this. I want you to search the earth for the best gospel tract that's ever been printed. Okay, find us the best one. And then I want you to go get the best apologetics training in the history of the world. Okay, so it's going to take some time, but I believe in you. And then I want you to put together the best gospel presentation that has ever been given in all of humanity, okay? And then I want you to go find a dead person and present the gospel to that dead person. It's not going to be real effective, is it? Listen, if I heard somebody say one time, the gospel has feet. The gospel comes to us while we're dead in our sins. And when it comes, it brings more than just facts and information. It brings a defibrillator. It brings us back to life. So I want you to know this morning. Listen, if you, this morning, if you're hearing this, and in any way the truth of God is compelling and is stirring, I want you to know that is the God who loves you, who treasures you, who is calling you to himself. The gospel has feet, and it's coming to you. Don't resist them. But you know, there's, there's a purpose to, all, to God doing all of this and all of our life. I mean, it's all, it's all going somewhere. It's not what you may think. See, the purpose isn't happiness. It's not com our comfort now. That's part of what secular Steve didn't realize. 
The purpose is all about how you and I will be. And who we will be is marvelous. So Paul says next, he says, God is doing all this so that, that's the purpose, you may obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. So why does he love, choose, transform, call, sanctify? So that you will one day be glorified. One day, for all eternity, you will see God's ultimate work in you. But for now, men and women, we have not experienced a fraction of what God is going to do in you. I don't think I could say it better than C.S. Lewis. He said this when talking about, in his book, The Hope of Glory, what, what, God, what we're all going to be one day. He said this, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. C.S. Lewis, he reminds us here that we should interact with everyone, not in light of what we are now, but in light of what we will be one day. There are no ordinary people. There are no mere mortals. If you're a Christian, you will obtain glory, he says. And not just any old glory, not just like the great value, off-brand glory. He says, the glory of Jesus Christ. Whatever glory Jesus Christ had, that is what you will have. Now, y'all, I... I don't even know how to comprehend that, let alone communicate it. I'm convinced we'll we'll spend all eternity figuring out exactly what that means. I was thinking this week, and okay, what what can I know it means? Really two things. Number one, it means resurrection. That's what Paul's been saying over and over to the Thessalonians. This is your hope. Death is not the last word for us, just like it wasn't for Christ. We will follow him in resurrection. Second thing is this. How foolish of me to strive for my own glory when he's been trying to give me his. What an inadequate substitute any other glory I can find in this earth would be. Well, then Paul gives us an important shift. He talks about how we express this truth now, how we express it in our lives now. And what he essentially says is, you don't, we do. This is why God gives us the church. So what, so what do we do with this? In verse 15, he says, so then brothers, brothers and sisters, he means, Not you individually, but us collectively as a family. See, we've got to remember, guys, this letter is a letter addressed to the church. He said this is to the church in Thessalonica. It is a letter about ecclesiology, about how the body of Christ lives out these truths. 
And so in these verses, all of the yous are plural. This is why I say we really, one day we need to get some rednecks in these translating committees so we can get some y'alls in here. Because y'alls tells you what it's really saying. It's y'all, it's not you. Okay, yeah, there we go. Amen on that one. He saves you. He does. He saves us individually, but he sanctifies y'all. You, you're saved as an individual, but you're saved into something greater than you. You're saved into a body. So he says, y'all, stand firm and hold to. So together, as a family, we help each other stand firm and hold to what God says we are. You know, last week, you may remember, we talked about the false teachers. And man, they were, they were creating white caps in people's minds and anxiety in people's hearts. They were shaking and alarming people. And so here Paul says, you need an anchor. You need something firm you can hold to in the midst of all those white caps out there. Something that will hold you in place in the stormy sea. And this is what the church is for. This is why he's writing this to the church. You know, I got to thinking this week, you know, I've never, never in all my time in ministry, I've never seen someone who distanced themselves from the church and then stood more, more firm in the truths of God. Who a year or two later found themselves more anchored in who God says they are. But I've seen, and it breaks my heart, I've seen countless people get too busy, too tired, become convinced I can get fed in other ways or get mad at somebody in the church. For whatever reason, they distance themselves from the church. And what always happens, those white caps in their mind, they grow, their anxiety in their heart rages. More and more they see themselves as who they are now instead of who they will be. The view of themselves changes, their view of God changes. I've seen it a hundred times. You've seen it a hundred times. Don't let that be you, men and women. Sooner or later, we have to decide if the Bible is right or if the culture is right. And this is one of the ways we have to be counter-cultural. If the Bible is right, if who we really are is who God says we are, then that means his church is a gift and there is nothing worth separating ourselves from it. Remember what Paul said. He said, believe it. Believe the truth. You got to believe it. Listen, I know it's spring. It's perfect weather out there to be working out in the yard or playing golf. I know you're busy. I know you're tired. I know your kids are really talented. I know everyone else does it. But if God is wor God's word is true, listen, sleeping in, it may give us more sleep. It will not give us more rest. It may help us avoid some people that are difficult to deal with but it unanchors us from the truth that sends us into the white caps of the culture. Men and women, as the church, listen, the best thing we can do for ourselves, for our kids, for our community is to stay connected to the family of the church, to our brothers and our sisters. That's how God designed it. So how does this work? So brothers and sisters together, how do we anchor one another? Well, he says, he says through, through the traditions that have been passed down. Now, this word traditions, it literally means teachings. He is referring to the scriptures that have been handed down from one generation to another. So even Paul's saying, I didn't make this up. I, it's been handed down over and over again, and we just keep that going. Now, in their mind, in the context, that would have meant the Old Testament scriptures, certainly. 
By then, it would have meant the accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the Gospels now. And by then, we know that they understood on some level that Paul, the writings of the other apostles, were the words of God. So they would have included the whole Scriptures in that. So he said, and and listen, this is why we gather around through the traditions with our family. So this is why, y'all, really all we do around here is put people in relationships with believers around God's Word. That's all we do. Everything else is window dressing. And, you know, that's why we, we don't need the, the, you know, some mini version of Disney World to reach our kids. Or we don't need the next Billy Graham. All we need is the brothers and sisters in relationship gathered around God's Word. That's all there's ever been. He says, when we do that, when believers gather together around His Word, He says we comfort hearts in verse 17. So, this is amazing to me. The Bible never says that comfort is a private matter. It's not, okay, I'm going through hard, but I'm going to read the Bible and comfort myself, and that's, it's like a dead end. It ends there. No. Think about what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1. He says, you comfort others with the comfort you yourself have received. So God uses someone else to comfort you when you need it, and then you take that same comfort and you pay it forward. So God has always set up the church to work through multiplication. What God does in you and for you doesn't stop with you. You multiply it out into other people's lives. And then he says, we, together we establish every good work in word. So this is great news for me this week when I figured this out. The, the picture in the Bible is never that you by yourself do every good work in word. Because you can never do that. I mean, I can get a couple, maybe. But every, there's no way I'm getting every. So what does God's word say? First Peter 4, he says that God has portioned his grace into each and every believer. And it's only when they all come together do you get the full kaleidoscope of God's grace. Ephesians 4 says we're, we're a body. Each part of that body has a purpose and a role and a gift. But it's only when you put them all together that the body functions fully and grows into the head who is Christ. So every good work and word comes from the church together. That's the picture over and over. Y'all, that's this taco lunch. This is the Spain mission trip. We got a few people going and all of the rest of us supporting through setting up, through manual labor, through eating, praise the Lord, right? It's the whole body, each one serving a function. And together, we can accomplish that good work. So this section, listen, it's, it's Paul's prayer that they will know who God says they are and that they will become who God says they are. And he's telling us the provision. He's telling us how this happens through the Holy Spirit, the Word, and the church. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. You know, I can't help but wonder this morning if maybe there's some secular Steve's or secular Stacy's here, maybe. I know I'm one of them. I'm tempted to be one of them many, many days. Maybe you're depending on yourself, not God's word, his spirit, and his people. Maybe you dictate your life and decisions based on who you are now instead of who you are with the glory of Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I know there's a secular Clint rolling around in here oftentimes. I want to close with this. I would love for everyone just to ask themselves two questions. 
First question is this. Who do you let define you? Who do you let define you? Is it you? Well, that's not an anchor. That's going to change all the time. Y'all, when I was five, I was pretty sure I was G.I. Joe. That turned out to not be true. Well, so far, I guess there's still time left. Listen, you're going to be changing and shifting all the time. Is it others, your past, your accomplishments? Those are not anchors either. Why don't today, why don't today you decide, listen, if God loves me, if he chooses me and treasures me and he saved me, then I'm going to settle it today. I am who God says I am. Second question is this. If everyone, if everyone here and not here did church the way I do church, would this be a place where people are anchored to who God says we are? Would his word be passed down to future generations? Would hearts be comforted? Would every good work and word resound from this place? You know, one thing I see over and over is there's so many people who ask and ask and ask for God to do something. But what they usually mean is, I I want God to do something for me. But often what God is waiting to do is to do something through me. Jesus says the way you find life is you give your life for the sake of the gospel. He says the way you follow me is to love and to serve others. So maybe, just be willing to consider this morning, the way you need is to actually raise your sail, align yourself with his spirit, his word, and his people. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.